0: Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage.
1: It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American.
0: My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of uh, Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Uh, We will have with us here in just a moment uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. He's the author of the brand new book, Pot Politics, Marijuana and the Costs of Prohibition. Just this week, the Houston Chronicle reported that Harris County, in conjunction with the city of Houston, want to build an approximate quarter billion dollar jail To house additional prisoners. You see, we already lead the world in the incarceration of our own people, but, uh, they want to build another, another kennel, I suppose, for their prey. Um, anyhow, with that thought, let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Great to be here, Dean. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, Mitch, I, I'm sorry to start with that uh, somber thought there, but just uh, I find it quite irritating. Um, you've written a book that I think uh, assimilates both sides of the argument. I found some points in there I really want to disagree with. I, uh, uh, But I, again, you have also brought forward many uh, very notable people, uh, people who have spent the time in the trenches, so to speak, to bring forward their opinion, and I, I think very worthy of uh, respect. Anyway, I, if you will, sir, if, define in your own words what this this book is all about.
2: Yeah, the bottom line, Dean, was I really wanted to get together uh, all the big thinkers in a whole bunch of different domains to see if I could put together a clear picture of the war on cannabis users. And in my previous book Understanding Marijuana, I had reviewed all the scientific literature myself and I thought, well, I want to make sure that there are a lot of people who uh, you know, see the world in the way that I do. Can I find an economist, a rabbi, a sociologist, uh, you know, a policy expert and everybody down all these different domains and see what they think about this war on cannabis users? And sure enough i did get a, a big range of responses we've got you know a chapter by somebody who used to write speeches for the drug are and then you know another chapter from uh... the media director of marijuana policy project so you can imagine there's a a big range of responses But in the long run, when you take a good, cold, hard look at all of these data and all the different ways people look at it, it seems like this is just not a good use of our time, not a good use of our money. And then when you get to philosophers and ethicists and and clergy, you find, in fact, this is not consistent with most of our stated moral values. This is not the way we pretend that we're supposed to think, feel, and value each other and our time and money.
0: Each person seems to present data that their life experience would indicate would hold true for marijuana and for everybody. But that's just not the case. There are various lives, experiences that that change that perception or how it impacts their life.
2: I particularly liked, uh, well, I have a chapter from Craig Rainerman, who's a sociologist at UC Santa Cruz. And he said, let me compare the people who use cannabis in Amsterdam to the people who use cannabis in San Francisco because these are two places that are alike in a lot of ways but have very different cannabis policies and sure enough all the negative consequences that we hear about marijuana uh... from you know the drug czar's office and and various media outlets were much more common in San Francisco where marijuana is you know prohibited than they were in Amsterdam where marijuana attitudes are much more open And I couldn't help but think, well, here we have it. You know, this is a wonderful way to show that if we could ease off on this incredibly outrageous war on drugs, we would suddenly have actually fewer of the negative consequences that we seem to think are caused by drugs.
0: Well, you had uh, several uh, authors uh, talking about the religious aspect. There are uh, several ongoing uh, cases that I'm aware of where people are talking about the sacramental use of this plant. And uh, uh, there are many religious organizations that have um, adopted at least, you know, medical marijuana, if nothing else.
2: It was it was encouraging for me to look through. Uh, Chuck Thomas has reviewed all of the different policies that each uh... church mosque temple you know major religious group has adopted and people understand that this isn't really not consistent with our religious teachings uh... rabbi Elliot dorf walks through all of the uh... prohibitions against drunkenness or against uh, unhealthful behaviors that appear in in the old testament and it's not that It's wrong to use something. It's that it's wrong to use it problematically. And I think, you know, if we could draw that distinction back in Old Testament days, certainly we ought to be able to draw that distinction here in the 21st century.
0: And and, uh, you also um, uh, allow discussion about the... uh I don't know, the schizophrenia thought and and the fact that marijuana supposedly up to, according to our drugs, are maybe 20 times as strong. And if I may, quote, uh, despite being uh, listing increased potency as the most likely reason for the increase in abuse and dependency, the study cites no evidence that higher potency marijuana increases the likelihood of such outcomes, and for a good reason, no such evidence has been published. And uh, this is from your uh, 2004, it says, the hypothesis that potent pot is leading to more... Or addiction is speculation.
2: Um, In fact, if, I'd be happy to elaborate on that. You please do. Please. There was a study that suggested look, the rates of dependence and abuse are higher today than they are back 10 years ago. But when you take a close look at the definitions of dependence and abuse, one of the symptoms of abuse is trouble with the law. Well, <laughs> what a surprise. We have more busts today than we did 10 years ago, and now we have the busts serve as a symptom of a disorder so what a surprise that we would suddenly have more of that disorder when in fact it's politically connected to the the definition of what is wrong so if you say gee getting busted is an abuse and then suddenly you start busting everybody what a surprise we have more abuse it has nothing to do with the potency of cannabis or anything else it has to do with how many policemen are out there arresting cannabis possessors. And, and, and that in
0: turn leads to more people um, in treatment when, and then those numbers of those in treatment are used as justification for uh, the, the cycle uh, of this whole
1: thing.
2: And again, I mean, you can imagine. Here you are, you're uh, somebody who's been busted for a simple possession charge, and the judge says you can go to jail or you can go to treatment. Well, that's not a tough decision. And in fact, when you take a close look at the folks who are in treatment purportedly for marijuana dependence, they haven't smoked often in a, a month or more since uh, since they had the bust. It's not like they're experiencing some kind of extreme withdrawal. It's it seems a, a, a really bad waste of uh, a treatment bed when somebody who's really addicted to a problem drug like heroin should be in there instead. It's just it's just a shame on so many levels.
0: It, it is that now. Uh, if you could, I guess, uh, sum up your interpretation. You've been studying this for years. You've been associating with uh, every uh, the person of caliber involved in this. And where are we now? Where are we headed in so far as maybe use of the cannabinoid products?
2: Well, it's intriguing because I think it's suddenly dawning on us that the fears we had about cannabis years ago just really are unjustified. So medical utility now has a large majority of Americans supporting it, and I think slowly but surely politicians are going to lose their fear and be able to support it themselves individual states are becoming more and more likely to pass medical cannabis laws we're seeing more and more uh... openness about actually distributing cannabis uh... in addition to passing these laws it's uh, a compelling case now that a taxed and regulated cannabis market would make literally billions of dollars more through saving law enforcement time saving our court time but also the actual taxes it would generate and i think individual states are slowly realizing this just isn't worth the effort i would much rather have my law enforcement officers focusing on rape and murder and violent crime than somebody who happens to have a couple of joints in his pocket
0: now, Mitch, I, I'm looking here uh, by reference. It's page 180 of your great new book, Politics, Marijuana, and the Costs of Prohibition. And it, it's a chart showing the uh, addictiveness ratings of various drugs, from marijuana, caffeine, amphetamine, alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, oxycodone, crack, nicotine, and heroin, and with heroin being the strongest and marijuana being the least. Now, I, I'm looking at uh, a, a front page of The Independent. It's from uh, August 1st of this year and it shows a relativity, relativity rating showing cannabis slightly more dangerous than solvents.
2: What will it take to get to common sense on this? It's intriguing because I think what has happened is uh, people know that once the marijuana fears disappear, the amount of money we're spending on the drug war will not make any sense. In truth, I, I agree that you know heroin, crack... Uh, methamphetamine, these are potentially dangerous drugs. But there really are not enough people addicted to these drugs in the United States to justify multibillion-dollar budgets for various uh, drug enforcement. So if that's the case, we have to pump up the numbers by emphasizing how many people use cannabis. Well, sure, lots and lots of people use cannabis because its negative consequences are so small, particularly relative to these really hard uh, difficult drugs well if we take those people away like mike gray says if you pull out that linchpin suddenly we're left with maybe you know six million people who are using uh... heroin problematically and we're not going to spend billions and billions of dollars to, to uh... fight a war that's really only involving six million of our citizens it just doesn't make any sense so the the drug enforcement teams have to keep hyping up this number and trying to make the marijuana figure bigger and bigger I'm always hopeful that data are going to prevail that that common sense will suddenly uh have its day. So that graph you're mentioning is one that I'm very proud of. Uh Bob Gore, who's a psychologist in California and I uh sent out surveys to over 700 drug experts. These are the people who are in the trenches talking to and dealing with addicted people, you know, day in and day out, and we just said to them, "Tell me, which of these drugs is you know, the ones we should be most worried about. And they ranked their feelings, uh, you know, just subjective impression of addictiveness. And as you can see, marijuana is just under caffeine. I mean, clearly, this is not uh, a drug that's creating a very serious dependence, tolerance, or withdrawal. So, why don't we let it go? Well, slowly but surely, I think people are going to change their mind.
0: Now, I, I think uh, the, I would advise reading this book if you want to find the latest here the, uh, from both sides. And, and again, um, I, I'm reading here from page 184, and I want to see if I interpreted this right. It shows, says recent data from uh, Smuck, Early Wine, and Gordus in Press, in fact, suggests that concomitant. Alcohol use raises the addictive potential of cannabis. Clinicians may observe this phenomenon and conclude that cannabis is addictive, while researchers may see it as evidence only for addictive potential of this combination. Um, does that mean if you smoke, if you drink beer, you might a lot of beer that you might smoke some pot? Is that what that's saying?
2: Well, essentially. We found that the folks who are most likely to show dependence on cannabis are also the folks who happen to be heavy drinkers. Now, uh, Sarah Smucker, my student who worked on that, is investigating the idea that maybe people are mistaking some of the symptoms of alcohol dependence for cannabis dependence and they're blaming certain kinds of symptoms of withdrawal on cannabis when really those are stemming from alcohol the other thing is is alcohol seems to slow thc metabolism so maybe it is keeping it in people's systems longer i also feel like there's a certain kind of person and i think we all know who is just kinda not. Uh, not out there for a safe kind of experience with drugs in general. <laughs> yes. And yes. this is, I think, the person who ends up using a whole lot of alcohol and a whole lot of cannabis. Uh, and that may be the issue more than any drug, so much as just an individual who would, you know, benefit from some from some therapy on a whole lot of life skills.
0: But somebody out there taking a big bite out of life. And, uh, we all know those people. Uh, sure, do- sure. Do- doesn't necessarily mean they're dangerous. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Earlywine, um, you have shown, I think, um, sufficient evidence to open the dialogue. And uh, I I know there are rumblings and grumblings and slow maneuverings within the various houses of state and federal to do little bits here and there. And then there are others like in uh, San Diego where the the city fathers are trying to negate the Prop 215. The the propaganda war goes on. Uh, What's your thoughts? Uh, Is the media beginning to provide real focus here? Are they, are
2: they looking Bruce, at... The, Bruce Merkin has a splendid chapter in the book as well, just talking about how the media has been kind of sucked in on this, not out of any malicious intent on their own, but I think because they just don't know any better. So they <laughs> often will report... uh Violence related to a bust at a marijuana grow, for example. And then they'll say, look, you know, pot is involved in this aggression. Well, that has nothing to do with cannabis. That has to do with cannabis being illegal. If someone had stolen a bunch of uh, computer chips or had been, you know, doing anything else illegal, we would have had that same kind of violent interaction between uh, folks who are on one side of the law and folks who are on the other side. And I think the media gets sucked into it. As Bruce often says, if it bleeds it leads. So if it sounds like it's uh, going to be a big melodramatic conflict and they can put it on the local news, that's what they do. I understand that they want to sell papers and sell commercial time on TV, but I think it's time to take a close look at what is the price we pay for having this kind of media coverage. And Bruce does an excellent job of walking through how it really has hurt us in the long run to think about marijuana as this dangerous demon weed when in fact it's just not consistent with the data or anybody's individual experience.
0: Well, uh, we, we uh, once again are speaking with uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. He's the author of the brand new book. I think I have one of the first ones uh, from your publisher here. I'm, I'm uh, proud you were uh, willing to come on our show and explain some of this, uh, this politicking that goes on and, and, and the need for change.
2: Well, I'm really grateful, Dean, and I'm I, a real, real big fan of cultural baggage. I really appreciate all your effort on this. I know it can't be effortless, and it's just a wonderful work.
0: Well, and uh, with that, uh, we'll uh, bid you adieu, and we'll, we'll bring you back a little later on. Talks- this is There's a lot more we need to talk about here. Absolutely. All right, thank you, Mitch. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Glenn Greenway has been providing us these Poppygate reports, low these two-plus years. And with this 100th Poppygate, he provides us a Drug Truth Network editorial.
1: Just like in the classic Spaghetti Western, Cowboy President George W. Bush sees three kinds of drug lords in this world, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Bad drug lords are the traditional drug war villains, such as the two founding members of Colombia's Cali cartel, who were extradited to the U.S. this week and sentenced to die in jail. Good drug lords, on the other hand, are those useful to U.S. foreign policy, such as the Afghan ministers, parliamentarians, and governors who control the world's illegal trade, managing the glue which holds the fragmented country together. Afghanistan is where heroin comes from, one-third more heroin this year than the world is likely to consume. Three million Afghanis planted opium poppy this year, up one million from 2005, and cultivation increased by half. Only 2% of this year's record-breaking harvest was eradicated. But not all Afghan drug lords are good by any means. Some are just positively ugly. The Taliban tax the opium harvest, which funds their extremist jihad against Western troops and Western nations. The level of violence in Afghanistan has risen dramatically in the last year. Suicide bombings, assassinations, and terrible battles are reported nearly every day. Estimated terrorist revenue from this year's opium crop is at least $300 million. If you listen very carefully, you may actually hear the sound of Mullah Omar laughing all the way to the bank. Whether by some complex calculus or some gut feeling, the president guides American drug policy guns blazing through the confusing gauntlet of good, bad, and ugly, but no such subtlety informs him regarding the millions of his citizens who choose to buy the drug lord's illegal wares there's another name for those and they're simply called guilty hang em
3: high. I. this is Glenn Greenway reporting for the drug truth network and now for another black perspective on the drug war I've always been fascinated by acupuncture that's where a problem in one part of the body can be treated by putting needles into another part of the body a patient's legs perhaps might be treated by sticking needles in their shoulder or neck A stomach problem with needles in the earlobes or elbows. How it works is a complete mystery to me. But apparently it makes perfect sense to some people, including some people looking for an alternative to the drug war. In an article advocating the passage of the Racial Justice Act, the author correctly states that in spite of the steady ratcheting up of enforcement, spending, and penalties... By an endless stream of get-tough politicians and officials, the only measurable result has been the disproportionate impact of incarceration on the black community. Yet, the cure this act prescribes is better anti-drug education, anger management, counseling for victims of school crime, and alternatives to gangs. Incredible. Well, that sure is a fancy bit of acupuncture that can fix a corrupt and racist criminal injustice system, posturing and indifferent politicians, money laundering bankers, and well-armed, well-connected, and immensely wealthy international drug lords by putting the needle to young black schoolchildren. As for me, I guess I'm just old-fashioned. When I see a society that's plagued by the poison policy of prohibition, my prescription is much more direct. End drug prohibition, and you end the drug problems. Anything else really misses the point. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson.
0: Earlier this week, I got a chance to speak with Mr. Kinky Friedman, running for governor here in the state of Texas, and some say his chances lie with uh, getting the votes of the young. Uh, so here's his interview. I've heard your comments about decriminalization. I, I think that's an excellent idea. But uh, the state of Texas is uh, talking about building more prisons. Just this morning, the Houston Chronicle says they're going to uh, expend a quarter billion dollars to build a new Harris County jail. Is it, Your thoughts on the
4: drug war and... Uh, perhaps the waste of our, our taxpayers' money well it's not perhaps it definitely is uh, decriminalization uh, is misunderstood by some people deliberately in fact uh, decriminalization just means <coughs> that, that we admit that we've lost the war on drugs and we do something smarter uh, California's done it, in fact. Denver has done it. Uh, There's places, I think Oregon has done it. And all it means is that you're going to be smart about this. Uh, I've given a challenge to people. Go to your favorite FBI agent. Find a DEA agent anywhere. Ask the guy off the record. Kinky Friedman is saying we should decriminalize marijuana. Is he right or wrong? They'll all say, I'm I'm positive of this, every one of them. We'll tell you that it's crazy to keep doing what we're doing because we're spending billions and we're wasting so much manpower. And what what's the result? A kid screws up his entire life with a stupid mistake. And if he goes to prison, then he's in that system. And that's what the prisons are full of right now. And what I want to do is clear them out, put them in rehab or put them in some kind of drug treatment and and spend the money on education and treatment uh, instead, of, uh, instead of doing what we're doing now, saying it's against the law. So it's not... I mean, if you're a big-time dealer or a smuggler, you're still going to get hammered. Uh, But if you're somebody who makes a mistake, uh, we're not going to put you in jail this time. Uh, We're going to work with you. And I think that um, we need room in the prisons for the really bad people. And they are pedophiles and politicians. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. I uh, I played
0: that uh, on the Century of Lies show. I hope you'll forgive me. I just thought That's it was...
5: twice me. today I've got that, and I loved it <laughs> both times.
0: And uh, the voice you hear in the background is my mentor, the man who gave me my first shot on uh, on the radio, Mr. Ray Hill, the uh, illustrious leader of the KPFT. Uh,
5: I thought I'd come by and ask for a little of my time back, actually.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, no I, I'm very honored that we are at the beginning of this drug truth network and cultural baggage because... Cultural Baggage because it's it's an enormous success and I'm very proud of that involvement early in early days of your broadcasting. And I know this is a national show, and I'm here to talk about a Houston problem, and I'll keep this essay real short. City of Houston, City Council, is wrestling with a no-smoking ordinance. It's under the nomenclature of make Houston a no-smoking city. Mayor White and uh, uh Councilmember Alvarado, who for a lot of reasons is trying to change the subject because her staff just got indicted today and she was not among them to get indicted so she wants to talk about something else and that whole committee is working to uh, make uh, uh, smoking illegal in bars we're licensed to sell alcohol uh, in uh, outdoor restaurants and other places where secondhand smoke is simply not a problem or it is an anticipated problem uh, <clears throat> this is the, this is the fault they have decided that the way you make change is to you pass criminal laws and force people to comply. Force conformity has been tried before. Integration was, uh, it was virtually outlawed in city Houston when I grew up. Segregation was enforced by criminal laws. Uh, black person went to the wrong place or a white person crossed the line, you were criminally prosecuted. That did not work. We managed to build a unitary society in spite of that. Uh, I live grew up in a heterosexual society. Conformity was enforced by a little law called Section 2106 of the Texas Penal Code. You could be arrested, fined, and that law was persecuted by the city of Houston and Harris County until the Supreme Court said in 2003, June of 2003, that it was unconstitutional. I personally have been the Supreme Court when the city tried to pass laws to tell me what I could say and when and to whom I could say it. That law went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States in Hill v. Houston, and in 1987 it was declared unconstitutional and taken off the books. Just because you have a problem or a perceived problem, the solution to it is not to pass a criminal law. Cops and courts are very expensive. If you want to change behavior, you use carrots, not sticks. But those people in power literally think they are better than the rest of us. Now, uh, Sunday we're celebrating Gandhi's birthday. And Gandhi would tell us that those are not bad people. They are just people with bad ideas. And that we shouldn't hold it personally against them. But when people get into power, they call it their responsibility and their duty to the citizens when actually they're drunk on that power. That drunk, that power becomes addictive. It's their addictive agent. It's their drug. And they have to exercise that power by forcing people to do things that they and some of their friends don't like. That is violence. And Mayor White is going to speak at the rally at City Hall at 5 o'clock, 5.30, this coming Sunday. And he is a man who says that he's going to say he is against violence and he is a peaceful man. And if Gandhi were there, Gandhi would get up after him and correct the error of his forcing criminal laws on citizens to make them behave the way he wants them to. I hope you'll join me. I'll be there. I'm a real pacifist. (laughs) And I hope to see you there. Now, we're not going to do ugly things or scream and shout. We're just going to stand in silent witness to the hypocrisy of those who abuse their power. Once again, that's
0: uh, Mr. Ray Hill. I I thank you for that, Ray. It brings to mind a couple of things that, one, Prohibition. We're going to make that work. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, I see it as perhaps a job opportunity. I could open up a place, call it Smoke Easy.
5: And, uh, oh, well, well, listen, I see it as a job opportunity. You pass the law, I get back into the business of civil disobedience, and I get to meet some real nice people who collect and drink fine wines and smoke expensive cigars. I've been wanting to talk to those people for a long time. <laughs> listen to the prison show tonight at 9 on this beloved radio station. Thank you, Dean.
0: With that, I, I thank you, Mr. Ray. Hill. All right. I I hope you have enjoyed tonight's show. Uh, It's a a privilege to uh, have Ray here in the studio. And again, my mentor, the guy who, who said, well, maybe he's got a good idea and gave me the shot. I thought about it for a long time before I decided to include this segment with Ray Hill to be distributed to the Drug Truth Network. But I thought what he had to say had relevance probably within every community within America If you want to hear the LEAP report from Terry Nelson, Drug War Facts with Doug McVeigh, or an interview I did with Bruce Merkin of the Marijuana Policy Project, please tune in to next week's 420 reports. And besides, Ray is a hero of mine. Let's return to the outro recorded in the studio. It's up to you. Uh, once again, I remind you, our website, drugtruth.net, and in uh, prohibition. Get involved. Help end this madness. And as always, uh, because of prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guthie, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. Show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jab dancing
1: on the edge of the <laughs>